The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. As you know, we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been preaching from the mountainside because what he is sharing is revolutionary, and it is totally unlike the kingdom in this world. Not only is it totally unlike the secular kingdom of this world, it is also totally unlike the religious kingdom of this world. And so in Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says something incredibly striking. He says, I tell this unto you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Never. And in chapter 5, he showed all these contrasts between superficial religiosity versus supernatural Christianity. And now in chapter 6, he's going to contrast three things, and I want to make the sermon as easy to follow as possible. Here's what Jesus is going to contrast. Both those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and those who will never enter it, both of them give to the needy. Both those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and those who will never enter it, both of them pray. Both those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and those who will never enter it, both of them fast. Now, these might be hard things to hear, so let me give you a warm reminder up front. Jesus is telling us something that's hard to hear because he actually loves us. God so loved the world that he sent his unique one-of-a-kind son so that whoever believes in him would not perish. Don't forget verse 17 of John 3. God did not send Jesus to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18 goes on to say, whoever, does, whoever believes in the name of the Son of God is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. But God's heart is that you would not be condemned. God's heart is that you would be saved. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus. So in today's passage, though the contrast is stark, and though admittedly Jesus is saying something a little hard for American Christians to hear, it's actually because he loves us. So the three contrasts that we're going to see really begin in Matthew 6, verse 1. Will you please look in God's word in Matthew 6? We're going to go through verses 1 through 18 today, and we're going to follow the three contrasts that Jesus makes. Verse 1, please look in God's word in Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And verse 1 sets us up for the three contrasts that Jesus is going to make. You see, there's a true gospel, but then there's an almost gospel. And the almost gospel is the one you have to be careful you don't fall for because it's close to the truth. But in reality, it's just superficial. So now the three contrasts will begin in verse 2. Before we get there, though, I just want to remind you one quick thing. Verse 1 says, beware of practicing righteousness before other people. And many people who have just cherry-picked this verse out of the Bible have said something like this. You see, Christians, we're not supposed to live our Christianity in public. You're just supposed to keep your Christianity to yourself. And I always say, I guess you didn't read the whole Sermon on the Mount. 
Because in chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they can see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Jesus is not against living your Christianity public. In fact, we must live our Christianity in public. The issue is not public versus private. The issue in verse 1 is the heart reason. Look again in verse 1. Some people do righteous things just to be seen by others. So there's a kind of righteousness that's actually just superficial. But then there's a kind of righteousness that's supernatural. And that's the kind Christ wants us to have. And so now number one on the notes, both those in the kingdom of heaven and those who will never go to the kingdom of heaven give to the needy. Look now in verse two. Thus, when you give to the needy, Jesus is assuming his followers will give to the needy because giving to the needy is a good thing. But when you give to the needy, don't give like the superficial righteous people do because they sound a trumpet before them. So verse two, you give to the needy, but don't do it sounding a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may be praised by others. That's the heart reason. And that's why he then says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What they wanted was praise and therefore the reward of praise is all they receive. I don't know if you've ever been to a mall where they have one of those deals where you put the quarter on it or the penny and it goes around and around and around and around and then it goes to the bottom. Whenever my kids see that, I think I'm going to run out of change. (laughs) There's so many ways you can send those things all the way down. Now, when Jesus says, don't give in a way that sounds trumpets, most commentators think what he's actually referring to is there were coffers outside the temple that looked like a trumpet would. There there was a metal coffer that you could put your coins into and it would slide down. But the hypocrites, the Pharisees and the scribes, would really clang the coffer when they put their money in there so that everybody knew what they were doing. So verse 2, when he warns, don't make a trumpet sound, he probably doesn't mean figuratively the fanfare of a trumpet like an entrance music for yourself. No, he probably means literally clanging the gong so everyone knows that you just gave. So he says there's a kind of righteousness that gives to the needy that's right, but then there's a kind of righteousness that gives to the needy that's hypocritical. In English, many of our words are borrowed from Latin or Greek, and you can probably recognize the Greek in hypocrite. It's actually from the Greek word for actor, which I think in and of itself is a little bit human, a little bit humorous. But the Greek word for actor means hypocrite because previously in thousands of years ago, when you were in a play, you would wear a mask. So to play the part, you would put a mask on and you were called a hypocrite because you were an actor. And Jesus says there's a kind of person that just puts on their righteousness mask when the thing they really want is available to them. In this case, it's the praise of others. But now Jesus expects his followers to give, but not in the same way. So look now in verse 3. So when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand even know what your right hand is doing. So give liberally, but don't dwell on the fact. Move on, verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Therefore, we have to pause for a moment and just press the point. Jesus is saying what he said was true in the first century is still true today. Is it not true that people who are actually part of the kingdom of heaven, people who know God through Christ and people who don't, don't both give to the needy? 
Giving to the needy is done by a lot of people. It may not have anything to do with whether or not you're born again or part of the kingdom of God in Christ. In fact, giving to the needy in an affluent age or in an affluent area is usually a well commonly applauded practice, which doesn't make it bad, but it means you can do it in a bad way. In fact, in America, you can give to the needy in a well-televised gala where everybody's dressed well and you get to learn moment by moment what each person is doing. In fact, if you watch the Super Bowl, someone will pay about $5 million for 30 seconds of airtime, and it's not uncommon for them to use those 30 seconds of airtime to virtue signal, to talk about all the good things they've done in the community or some village that they've provided food for. Virtue signaling was recently added to the Oxford Dictionary because the problem of giving to the needy for self-praise is that common. The Oxford Dictionary defines it this way, giving virtue signaling is doing something perceived publicly as good to generate approval. So look back now in verse 2 of Matthew 6. Why do these people give? They give to be praised by Others. So what is the thing they're actually worshiping? The answer is approval. The God that they really worship is the approval of peers and the praise of others. And approval idolatry works like this. My life is only truly satisfying and meaningful if this group of people think a certain way about me. My life is only fulfilling if I'm respected and appreciated and recognized by these people. And that's the case of this first group who gives. But not only do people in the kingdom of heaven and those who will never enter the kingdom of heaven give to the needy, which is what almsgiving is, but also both people in the kingdom of heaven and those who will never enter the kingdom of heaven pray. Look now in verse five. This is number two. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because a lot of people pray, but they don't pray in the same way. Those who are not part of the kingdom of heaven pray in a certain way. Look in verse five. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. And here we have again the same heart motivation that they may be seen by others. This is the compelling reason they pray. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What they sought as a goal was the praise of men, and that's all they ever receive. Now, Jesus expects his followers will pray, but not in the same way. Look in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Let me give you another common caution that I want to make sure we don't make the same mistake. Some people look at this verse and say, you see, we're not allowed to pray in public. We should only pray privately, but we only have to read three more verses and Jesus will pray in public. So of course, Jesus doesn't think you're only allowed to pray privately. He prays in public on many occasions. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2, we are commanded for men to lead in prayer publicly when the church gathers. So public prayer is not bad. So what does Jesus mean? He means there's a kind of prayer that only happens publicly. And then there's another kind of prayer that exists both in private and in public. There's a kind of prayer that only exists when the thing you really worship is in jeopardy. And there's another kind of prayer that happens at all times. 
I shared with you last week the Barna research from 2014 in which they asked a group of people, do you believe in God? And many people said, I do not believe in God. And then they asked that group of people, people who said, I do not believe in God. They then asked them this question. Those of you who do not believe in God, did you pray in the last seven days? And 58% of them said yes. So prayer is a fairly ubiquitous thing. Lots of people pray, and you know that's true, right? It's not uncommon on Facebook or on a commercial for anybody to say, hey, we're, we're praying for you. May God bless. You're in my prayers. That's very culturally accepted. That may not mean anything about whether or not you've been born again. So those in the kingdom of heaven pray, and those who are never going into the kingdom of heaven pray. But now Jesus makes a third contrast, and here we need to jump down to verse 16. Both those in the kingdom of heaven and those never going to the kingdom of heaven fast. Look in verse 16. When you fast, which means to abstain from something for a while, a fairly common practice, you may take a technology fast, a food fast, all sorts of entertainment fasts. Verse 16, when you fast, again, Jesus expects his disciples will fast, just not in the same way. So when you fast, don't look gloomy like, and here we have the same word again, the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. This is now the third time we've seen in the contrast, they do what they do for the praise of other people. The verse continues, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They did what they did for the praise of others and that's all they'll ever receive. But now verse 17. Those of you who are followers of Christ, when you fast, assuming you will, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's what Jesus has done in Matthew 6. He's taken the three pillars of first century Jewish piety, given to the needy, praying and fasting, and he has demonstrated that his actual disciples do that, but also people who are not his disciples do that. So then what is the difference? How could we know if you're a follower of Christ or not, if both followers of Christ and those who aren't both do a lot of the same things? And that's the point of chapter six. He wants to get to the heart difference between the two. Now, three times we read the real reason the hypocrites give, pray, and fast. And three times you saw in the Bible, it's so that they can be seen by others, which means that their God is approval, peer approval. Human approval is a common idol. And I've been convicted and helped by Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, where he warns about the progression of the idol of approval. He says the idol of approval takes four steps. First, you desire, then you demand, then you judge, then you punish. Let me explain them. First, you start by desiring to be more appreciated. More people should notice me. More people should recognize how important I am. But then that desire moves to a demand. I demand to be more appreciated. Without me, this family, this church, this team, this community would never succeed. It is because of me, and I demand to be respected and acknowledged. Where's my reward? And then if you don't get satisfied there, you move to the third step. You judge. You assume that other people don't properly appreciate you. They don't value me enough. I know the motives of their heart, and I'm sure they don't recognize how good they have it with me. And then fourth, when you still feel like you don't have enough, then you move to the final step, which is you punish. 
And there are lots of ways to punish people. Passive aggressive ways are probably the most common. Ken Sandy writes, sending subtle, unpleasant cues over a long period of time is an age-old method of inflicting punishment. So when that person doesn't acknowledge you enough, then you give them the cold shoulder or you, you distance yourself or you just treat them differently. Or if your personality is differently, then maybe rather than a passive aggressive, you take a direct aggressive approach and you say bad things about them and you slander them and you get angry with them and you're mean to them. But it all comes down to the heart desire to be known and approved and acknowledged and praised. Approval idolatry is a dangerous one. But the difference between those who are in the kingdom of heaven and those who will never enter it, according to Jesus, is explained in the heart of today's passage. But first, let me show you that the how reveals the when and the when reveals the why. That probably made no sense. (laughs) But, But the how, how they do it, is revealed when they do it, which actually reveals why they do it. Let me show you real quick. Matthew 6, we're going to go fast now. Okay, this is letter A underneath number 4. Those who are actually in the kingdom of heaven have a spiritual life even when only God is involved because they know God as Father and that is always reward enough. So Matthew 6, verse 4, when you give, do it in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you and that's enough. Verse 6, when you pray, go to your room, shut the door. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. And that's enough, even if nobody else ever notices you. Verse 18, when you fast, don't do it for others, but by your father who sees you in secret and he'll reward you. And that's enough, even if no one else never praises you. Your father is all that matters to you. But then see, there's another kind of life, those who don't enter the kingdom of heaven. The only reason they have a spiritual life is when the thing they really worship, in this case, human approval, can be fueled or served. So verse 2, they give to the needy only so they can be praised. That's the only time they give. Verse 5, they pray only when they can be seen. That's the only time they pray. Verse 16, they fast only when they can be seen. You see, the when reveals the why. There's a kind of religious frenzy that happens, a kind of churchiness that happens, Only when the thing you really love can be served or is in jeopardy. Let me explain. I'm a pastor, and over the years, I've noticed there's a kind of person that gets really churchy for a few months when the thing that they really love is in jeopardy. Many times I've met someone over the years who comes to me, and their career is at a crossroads. And they're not sure if their business is going to make it. And so they devote to church life and they devote to spiritual things because if God could just help their career advance, then they'd be satisfied. Or I've known people who have Mr. Right or Mrs. Right that they're hoping will fall in love with them and they hop into church life. And for three months, they volunteer for everything because at the end of that three months, they want Mr. Right to fall in love with them. And God should give them that thing because that's what God, God is for, Right. But what if God isn't for helping you get something other than God? What if there's a kind of supernatural righteousness that finds God himself as your father to be infinitely satisfying? A kind of righteousness that doesn't just heat up when that other thing could be gained, but when God himself is with you. See, there's all sorts of counterfeit gods that we could serve. But the when reveals the why. Does it only heat up 
when you can get that other thing? Or is there a religious life even if there is nothing else other than God? See, the delight in having and pleasing God is the heart difference. Now, here's what I've done so far. I gave you number one, the difference in the way they give to the needy. Number two, the difference in how they pray. Number three, the difference in how they fast. And the heart of the difference is in the middle. So now look with me in verses 7 through 15. Verse 7. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think they will be heard for their many words. Do you see what verse 7 is saying? They think they'll be heard because of the contribution of the effort that they've brought. They think they'll be heard based on their own merit. But God doesn't hear people based on their merit. First, can I just point out to verse 7, God doesn't hear everybody's prayers. There are prayers some people pray that are not heard. They think they're going to be heard because of all the contribution they're making. They're not heard. God hears prayers of those who are his through his perfect son. So look in verse 8. Do not be like them. Why? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Did did you see that? Verse 7, these people think, if I do all this work, then God will hear me. No, no, God doesn't hear you based on your merit. God hears you based on a relationship with him. If you have him as father, then your prayers are heard. And so that's why now in verses 9 through 15, Jesus is going to give the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is often known out of context. How many of you actually knew the Lord's Prayer was in the middle of a contrast between those who give, pray, and fast, and the difference between them? I bet almost nobody did. Verses 9 through 15, the Lord's Prayer are supposed to show you the heart of someone who is in the kingdom. Here's the heart kind of prayer of someone who does have a relationship with God through Christ. Here's the heart kind of prayer of someone who's in rather than someone who never gets in. Verse 9, pray then like this. And then he's going to give the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Can I give you a caution here? Jesus is not giving you a formula because he just got done saying, God hears those who know him as Father. So this is not a mantra for you to recite because we just saw in verse seven, there are people who recite who are never heard. It is sad and ironic that in America, many liberal denominations that don't believe in salvation through Christ quote the Lord's Prayer, right? The Lord's Prayer isn't the magic formula. The Lord's Prayer is a window into the kind of heart that actually does know God as Father. So verse nine, pray then like this, our Father in Heaven. Each one of those words matters a lot. First, notice the word our. Jesus is saying, you can call God Father if you know me. We call God Father together. Those who know Christ can call God Father. Father is the Aramaic word Abba, which is a word of intimacy, a word where you know God Father well. But notice it's not overly casual because the Father is in heaven. So here's our father who we know through Christ. We know him intimately, but we don't know him casually because he is in heaven. And now Jesus will give six petitions. Here's the first one. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to be made holy, to be seen as holy, to be recognized as who he is. And name in the Bible means more than it does for us. Name means your character, your qualities. So the first petition is may God be known as God. The second petition, your kingdom come. God, may your kingdom come. May your rule reign. The third petition is 
God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, may your desires be done. Let's pause right there. We're only three petitions in. How many people pray like that? God, I want your name to be glorified. That's the first thing on my heart. God, I want your kingdom to reign. That's what matters most. God, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, not my will. I want your will to be done. This is a window into the heart of someone who knows God as Father. Now notice the final three petitions, number four, five, and six. Number four, give us this day our daily bread. God, I depend on God for even basic daily needs. Don't miss that it's daily and that it's bread. Daily means every day, and bread means that you're asking for needs, not greeds. This really reconvicted me again this week. Can I tell you why? Because in my house, I have a fridge and I have a microwave. (laughs) And I found that if I feel the pangs of hunger, I go to the fridge and I pull something out and I put it in the microwave. And four minutes later, when it's sapped of all nutritional value and it dings, (laughs) I open the microwave and I take it out and I satisfy my hunger. And I can do that without thinking about God at all. But imagine someone who lives in a time or a place without a grocery store and without a fridge, and without a microwave. Do you know in the Old Testament how often God gave the people manna? Do you remember? Every day. Do you remember what happened if they tried to store it up in advance? He made it go rotten so that the people would learn, you can't make it through a day without me. May God help me, because I was so convicted reading this again, how self-sufficiently sinful I am. And yet Jesus reminds me over and over again, apart from me, Josh, you can do nothing. So pray every, every day for your needs. Now, the fifth petition, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This passage is so hated by people that I read several commentators this week who argue that the word debts cannot mean sins because they hate the idea of acknowledging sin to God every day. First, let me just disabuse you of that grammatically. The Greek word is ophelema, and though it can be translated debt, it's only used once in the New Testament, it is using debt metaphorically as sin. How do we know that? Because when the Lord's prayer is repeated in Luke, in chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus says, forgive us our sins. Wait, why would a Christian ask for God to forgive their sins every day? Don't you just do that once and then you're done? Why would a Christian ask God to forgive their sins every day? For the same reason we ask God for bread every day, to remind us that apart from God, we have nothing. Do you know why most of us don't ask God to forgive us for our sins for the day? Because that means before we go to bed, we have to acknowledge our sins for that day. We have to remember that moment where we snapped at somebody else, where we lost our cool, where we were frustrated. But do you know how good it is for our relationship with God to conclude our day, Lord, what I did today, what I thought today, what I felt today, some of those things were sinful. Forgive me for the sinful way I thought and desired and spoke. But Lord, I thank you that all my sins, not in part, but the whole, were paid by Christ on the cross. And I rejoice in that again this evening. So we pray every day, Lord, forgive me of my sin. 
That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us again of all unrighteousness. The sixth petition, though, is verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. James 1.13 says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So Jesus is clearly not praying, God, don't tempt me to do something evil. God doesn't do that. So Jesus is praying, God, help me not to fall to sinful temptation. Think of the humility it takes to pray that way. To help you understand the connection between these, I read a story that I think is a true story that I thought was pretty humorous. The story goes like this. A minister parked his car in a no parking zone downtown. He was short of time. He couldn't find space where there was a meter. So he put a note under his windshield wiper that read, I've circled the block 10 times. If I don't park here, I'll miss my appointment. And then in quotes, forgive us our trespasses. And when he came out from the appointment, he looked under his windshield and he found a police citation. (laughs) And the officer wrote a note that said this, I've circled this block for 10 years. And if I don't give you a ticket, I'll lose my job. And then in quotes, lead us not into temptation. (laughs) I love that because it reminds us the balance between these things. In these prayers, we're asking God for daily help. We're not tempting him to give us the right to pursue sin. But I want you to notice that verse 14 and 15 repeat one of the petitions. I think to show you how important that one is. Remember verse 12 said, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. But this one's so important. Jesus repeats it. Look in verse 14 and 15, because if you forgive others, their trespasses, that's the mark that your heavenly father is yours and he will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you your trespasses. Do you remember the contrast? I said at the very beginning of the sermon, Matthew 5 verse 20. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In Luke chapter seven, Jesus was invited over one of the Pharisees' homes. It was Simon's home. And when Jesus was there, there was a woman who was a known sinner, a prostitute, and she washed Jesus' feet and she cared for him. And Simon and the Pharisees murmured, Jesus must not be a very good guy. He would never let a woman like that get close to him. And then Jesus told Simon and the Pharisees a story. He told them a story about someone who's forgiven of a small debt and someone who's forgiven of a large debt. And Jesus said to Simon, which one do you think would be more grateful? And Simon said, well, I I suppose the one who's forgiven of the large debt. And Jesus said, you've judged rightly. And then he told Simon, but when I came in here, you didn't care about my feet. You didn't care about being a normal, considerate host to me. But this woman has not stopped praising God for me since I came in. And then Jesus said this, she, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. You see, the truth is we're all forgiven much. And someone who knows they're forgiven much, forgives much, loves much. See, the Pharisees and scribes have a righteousness that's just superficial. But Jesus offers a righteousness that's supernatural. And the key difference is knowing God as Father. Like I said, as a pastor, I've seen many people come and get churchy for a while because the idol that they really love is in jeopardy. 
And I always try to move them away from that idol. I know you're trying to get this thing or trying to get that thing, but what you really need is God and you'll find him satisfying. And praise God, some people do, but other people keep pursuing that idol and eventually it dissatisfies them and then they leave and they're angry and they're often angry at God. But you know what else I've seen? I have seen God work graciously in the lives of Christian people so that their godliness causes them to praise God even when life is terrifying. This week, I visited a family from our church here at Emmanuel who's going through a really hard time. But every time I've been with that family, I found myself in awe of God's grace because of their trust in God's wisdom, their joy in God's goodness, and their confidence in the peace that comes with God's presence. And I sit back after meeting with them and they say, thank you for visiting me. And I say, no, no, thank you for ministering to me. Because you remind me that those who are in the kingdom of heaven, they don't just pray when things are good. They pray when things are bad. They don't just give when they can be seen. They love Christ when nobody sees them. They don't just care about doing religious practices to be noticed by others. They love God as their father. See, the heart difference between those in and those who are never in, is how you view God. Here's what I think hurts us as Americans. We don't get what a big deal it is to call God Father. In the Old Testament, the word Father is only used 15 times in reference to God, and it's not used once in prayer, not a single time. When Jesus comes and calls God Father and tells his disciples, you can call Father God Father too, all of his listeners would have been shocked. They would have thought Jesus was being presumptuous or overly casual. And then in the New Testament, God is called Father by Christians 165 times. There's a massive change. But we don't get how great it is because in America, we tend to think of God as not that holy, not that transcendent, not that mighty, not that different from us. We've made him so casual and cheap that we don't get how amazing it is that the creator of the universe would let sinners call him father, that he would adopt us into his family forever and treat us as his own. But for rebellious, evil people to be loved by God is astounding. And if that astounds you, then why would you ever pursue human approval when you have the creator God's acceptance? You see, all the idols lose their grip when God is satisfied. Here's the good news of the Sermon on the Mount. You don't have to earn God as father. See, in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 and in chapter 7, not one time does Jesus say, hey, if you do this and you work hard at this, then God will become your father. No, each time he says, if God is your father, then you can do this. If God is your father, then you can delight like this. If God is your father, then you can make it through this. You see, having God as father is a gift of grace, and it should be astounding to you. Here's a book I want to recommend to you. I really think if you're a Christian, you should read this book before you die other than the Bible. And it's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And in Packer's book, he has a chapter on adoption, chapter 19, and he writes this. What is a Christian, J.I. Packer asks? 
The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God for his father. The idea that all men are children of God is not found in the Bible anywhere. The gift of sonship to God becomes ours not through being born, but through being born again. Sonship to God is a gift of grace. But let me remind you how easy it is to confuse superficial religion with a supernatural relationship with God as Father. John Wesley was an honor graduate at Oxford University, was an ordained clergyman in the Church of England. He was active in social and practical good works. He regularly visited inmates and prisons in London. He studied the Bible diligently. He fed the poor, orphans, and homeless. He attended numerous church services every week. He generously gave to ministries, including alms to the poor. He fasted. He lived an exemplary moral life. And he served as a foreign missionary from England to the Native Americans that were in Georgia in the United States. And he prayed frequently. But here's what John Wesley wrote when he came back from his missionary service. I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. I had the faith of a servant, but not that of a son. Listen this morning. The difference between all sorts of people who give, all sorts of people who pray, and all sorts of people who fast is whether or not you know and delight in God as Father. And you can only delight and know God as Father if you have come to Him through finally being poor in spirit enough to say, God, I have nothing of my own. I have no contribution that would allow me to stand in your sight. But your perfect son, Jesus, came and he lived righteously and he went to the cross and he bore my sins in his body and he didn't stay dead. He rose victoriously and he ascended and sat at the right hand of God so that I can sit next to you too. See, if you find Christ as everything, then you'll delight in God as Father. But let me warn those of you who maybe worship a counterfeit God like approval. At what point would you ever feel praised enough? What if a lot of people recognize you, but a few criticize you? What if some people think you're great and some people don't even notice you? When would that false idol ever fulfill you? No idols do. Only the satisfaction of God does. But I have to speak to you more directly than maybe you're even used to being spoken to. Not only will an idol leave you unsatisfied, here's the question that I left hanging at the beginning. Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen, if you don't ever go to the kingdom of heaven, where do you go? Do you know a lot of people think that when your life's over, it's just over? A lot of them are politicians, and they tell you that they're Christians. Ben Carson is one of them. I've read books by him. I like Ben Carson. It broke my heart when he was interviewed on 60 Minutes and said, when you're dead, that's it. No one goes to anything after death. Is that what Jesus said? Look in Matthew 5. If you can follow me fast, do it. Otherwise, just listen. Matthew 5, verse 22. Two verses after saying this, Jesus said, 
you will be liable to hell of fire. Matthew 5, verse 29, your whole body will be thrown into hell. Matthew 5, verse 30, your whole body will go into hell. Matthew 7, verse 19, your whole body will be thrown into the fire. Matthew 8, verse 12, you'll be thrown into outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 10, verse 28, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 13, verse 40, The weeds are gathered and burned with fire. Matthew 13, verse 42, throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, verse 50, throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 18, verse 8, you will be thrown into the eternal fire. Matthew 18, verse 9, it is better to go through life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Matthew 22, verse 13, they will be cast into outer darkness and in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 23, verse 33, how will you escape being sentenced to hell. Matthew 25, verse 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you know who I quoted in all those verses? Jesus. In the gospel of Matthew, there are many other scriptures we could go to, but listen, do you know what Jesus says happens if you don't go to the kingdom of heaven? You spend eternity in hell. Now, I know many churches that I have driven by across the country like to talk all about Jesus and how much they love Jesus, and they just want Jesus to love everybody. And you know what I thought after I read Jesus and Matthew? What percentage of pulpits in America do you think Jesus would not be allowed to share this sermon in? Probably a very high percentage, right? Because we're always told in America, you just got to love everybody. You got to affirm everybody. Listen, if someone won't tell you the peril you are in, they do not love you. Jesus tells you the truth because he loves you. You either have him as brother and God as father or you have eternal separation in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Love tells the truth. But the beauty of this is that Jesus took hell for us. We've read a passage about giving to the needy and praying and fasting. What did Jesus give to the needy? He who is rich became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. The one who owns the cattle on Thousand Hills gave it all up and went to the cross. How did Jesus pray for those of us in trouble? Remember what Jesus told Peter? Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And listen, brother or sister, in John 17, Jesus prayed for you so that you would not fail. How did Jesus fast? Remember 40 days in the wilderness, the spirit of God brings him there so that Satan can tempt him. And on the other side of that fast, in obedience to the father, Jesus perfectly fulfills all righteousness. You see, Jesus tells you the truth because he loves you and because he then takes the punishment you and I deserve. What is the difference between those in the kingdom of heaven and those who will never enter it? Those who know Christ have been humbled and delight in knowing God as their father. Do you? You can by just being poor in spirit and admitting your need and delighting in Christ as your brother. This morning I'll close with one more quote from J.I. Packer's book. He writes, if you want to know how well someone understands Christianity, find out how much they make about having God as father. If this is not the whole thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, 
Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we could be called the sons and daughters of God. Lord, we give thanks to the Father who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have the redemption and forgiveness of our sins by his blood. Lord, in the Bible, you talk about adoption over and over and over. In the fullness of time, you tell us Christ came born of a woman, born under the law so that he could fulfill the law and so that we could be adopted and have you as father. But Lord, in our culture, we cheapen you. You don't seem very holy. You don't seem very big. You don't seem very transcendent. And we don't seem very bad. And so we just conclude that, of course, God would think that I'm a great person and that he would be my father. But the truth is, it is a shocking awe of amazing grace that you would save anyone. And to do so at the cost of your innocent son? Remarkable. So, Lord, protect us from the superficial religiosity that goes down so easily. And remind us of the supernatural power of the kingdom that changes us truly from the inside out so that when we give as Christians, we give because we love our Father and that's enough. When we pray as Christians, we pray because we love our Father and that's enough. When we fast as Christians, we fast because we love our Father and that's enough. There's so many counterfeit gods that Satan has crafted in this world, and one of them is approval. But living for approval is never satisfying. People's opinions change every week. But thank you, Lord, that you make us yours forever. Someone listening this morning maybe needs to realize for the first time, if they do not run to Christ poor in spirit, they are facing eternal hell. It doesn't end here. It goes on forever. May they come to Christ this morning and may they be saved. And may they for the first time by the power of the Spirit cry out, Abba, Father. But those of us who know the Father, Lord, change us so that we pray like this. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily needs, Lord. We can't make a day without you. Forgive us our sins today. We sinned more than we want to admit today. Lord, help us to forgive other people like you've forgiven us. Help us to live like kingdom citizens so that people see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. In your Son's name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.